Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are thrilled that you are with us as we have come together as a church family to worship this morning. If I have not had a chance to meet you yet, I'm Alan. I am uh, the senior pastor here and one of the elders, and we are just thrilled that you chose to come and worship with us today. I had a chance to meet some of you as you came in the door this morning, and I saw some others come in uh, as the service was beginning. If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, I would love the opportunity to do so uh, whenever the service is over with. But whether you are joining with us for the first time here in this building, or whether you're joining first time uh, online with us, either way, we are thrilled that you are worshiping with us and would love an opportunity to be able to share some information about what's going on in the life of the church and uh, kind of get you connected. And, and the best way you can do that and help us do that with you is to fill out the connection card that was mentioned a little bit earlier. And uh, they're available here in the building. You can also get one uh, online. And then um, if you are interested in considering this church as your church home, uh, as in to become a member of our church body, you can see on the inside of the worship guide that we are having a new member class coming up on Sunday, August the 22nd. And, uh, and uh, you can come and learn more about the church. You can sign up online. And as Chad mentioned a moment ago, anytime we mention signups and, and the app and website and all of that, you can sign up at the registration table that's right out there in the foyer whenever the service is dismissed. Uh, we are, um, well, actually, I, I started to get into the sermon, but let me mention a couple things real quick. I, I strongly encourage you to pay attention to when these discipleship classes are announced and hope groups are announced because we believe that doing life together is absolutely vital, that God has made us to be community and relationship-minded, and the way that we can do that is in our hope groups, which is our form of small groups that happen in homes during the course of the week, and also through some Bible study classes. There are several that are going to be announced in the next week or two. And uh, we're going to have a parenting class. We're going to have a women's Bible study class. We're going to have, um, uh, let me see, I'm, I'm forgetting. The, uh, one is a, like a theology and apologetics type class. And then another is how to study the Bible. Uh, they're going to have more specific titles than I just listed. Uh, but th that's what's going to be happening. And then also our CIA, which is college and young adults, will be kicking off a Bible study again in the fall. And uh, then, of course, 605, which is for our students, for our youth will be happening on Sunday night. So there's a lot of different things that are going to be happening. want to encourage you, got a shout out on the 605, thanks Jacob. Uh, so I want to encourage you to plug into one of those Bible studies and hope groups. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the terminology, it's all founded in, found in the worship guide as well as online, and you can contact us and we can give you information as well. And I cannot strongly emphasize, I cannot be strong enough to emphasize the importance if you're in town to be here for lunch and worship service on August 29th, because we need each other. God has made us to need each other, and we want you to be a part of what's happening within the life of this church body. And, uh, and so just having lunch together and hearing about the things that are coming up in the fall is going to be absolutely important. So just show up, be a part of the worship service, and stick around for the lunch that's free on Sunday the 29th. All right. We are in the middle of uh, a series that's walking us through the entire New Testament as a church family. We're reading a chapter a day, five days a week, through the New Testament, not necessarily starting in Matthew chapter 1, ending up in the end of Revelation, but we are reading each chapter of the New Testament. In fact, at the bottom of your worship guide, if you picked one up, uh, on the sermon notes on the back side, it'll show you what chapters we're reading this week. We'll be reading Hebrews 9 through 13 this coming week, is found at the bottom of this. Um, and you can also get that off our reading guide that's available on the website as well as out in the hallway. 
But we are picking up a series that we started in the book of Colossians a few weeks ago, and we're picking it up again today. It'll be this week and next week, and it's on the supremacy of Christ that we find in the book of Hebrews. But before I dive into Hebrews chapter 7, which I hope that you've got a Bible with you. If you don't, that's okay. We've got Bibles and chairs around you. Grab one. And uh, if you don't own one or you need one, feel free to take that home with you. But before I dive into the text for this morning, I want to paint a picture of something that you should have seen. It was quite entertaining, and you should have been there in my backyard in Shreveport, Louisiana, a few years ago, whenever I decided we needed to take down, and I think I might have told this story to some degree in the past, if I have, here it goes again, uh, to take down a, a porch, uh, not a porch, a, a swing that was in the backyard, and, it, and so we took the swing set down, it's not like a kid's swing set, it's, it's a full fledged swing thing and it's put up with posts well the the covering came down the swing came down but the two posts were still in the ground and I'm like okay how do I get these posts out there's got to be a good way to do this and I began to kind of fiddle with it and try to take it out and I was like no there's got to be a better way so I began to look for a better way to get this out I was like okay all right I'm gonna dig out because you know these posts are in cement so I need to dig it out and I'm like that's going nowhere. Like, I can't dig this out. And I'm like, okay, I know what I need. I know what I need. I need to go down to Lowe's. I'm going to pick a sledgehammer up, and I'm going to pop that thing and hit it and beat it to submission, and then it's going to come out of the concrete. And so I began to do that. And this is the middle of the summertime. Sweat's pouring down my, my face, and I'm working hour after hour after hour in the hot sun, and I'm getting absolutely nowhere. Kept thinking, there's got to be a better way. And so I'm trying to figure it out. And then I'm like, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go rock rock these boys. I'm going to kind of do this thing back and forth and it'll, it'll bust it loose and I'll dig a little more and then I'll hit it with the sledgehammer some more and th th those wooden bows were beat up to death but they weren't coming out of anything and, and it's now dark and it's hot and it's humid and I'm frustrated. There's got to be a better way to do this. I go to bed. I get up Saturday morning, I get back out there to the grind, and I don't know if you've ever done this or not, you've probably never been as stupid as me, but I'm rocking this thing, I'm like, oh, it's almost loose, like, like another like, like a centimeter, and I'll get this thing loose, and I kept thinking I was getting closer and closer, until finally, I popped that boy loose, but the bad thing is, I popped that post right in half. Do you know what happened when that post popped in half? The first thing it did was it popped me on the head. And then the next thing it did was it put me on my rear end. And then the next thing it did was it caused me to roll over backwards. And the next thing it did was cause me to run into the fence. I get up a little dazed and confused. And I'm wearing some sunglasses and there's red all over my glasses. I think I've just died because my head is bleeding so bad. I'm like, <laughs> I go in the house. Ashley, I think I've got a problem here. Um, I drove myself to the uh, quick care place, got some staples in my head, and looked like Frankenstein, and guess what? The posts were still in the ground, <laughs> except for the half that I popped loose. I get to church the next morning, and I'm talking to my friend Troy, and he goes, you know what? There's a better way to do that, Alan. I'm like, no, duh. Like, I know that, but I just don't know what that better way is. He goes, Alan, a sledgehammer that you're beating the thing with, if you'll just simply go over to the post, and if we go tap, tap, and then go to the next post, the next side, tap, 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 on all four sides, it'll pop out. I'm like, no way. Like, he doesn't know how I've been battling. It's like, no way, no way. So after church, I go out there. Guess what, guys? 
a little love tap on all four sides, and it comes right out the hole. And I realized there's a lot of times better way to do things than what we think. And as we go through life, we are beating ourselves over upside the head with the proverbial post doing things the hard way. There's a better way. And that better way has a name, and that better way is Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, we see that the author of Hebrews, we're not sure who the author is because he's not named, but the author of Hebrews wants to drive home the point to us that there is a better way, a superior way, and that way is Jesus. In fact, the word better, I did some study this this week on the word better in the Greek. Did you know that the word better is used 12 times in the book of Hebrews? The word better is used three times in chapter 7 alone, which is what we're going to be looking at today. Then in verses 11 through 28 of chapter 7, the word better is used twice there. Now, this better in the Greek is not simply kind of somewhat better, like, oh, this is wiser than that. No, better is like best. Like better is superior, better is excellent, better is greater. And so whenever the title of the message says Jesus, the better way, I'm not saying it's kind of better between this and that. No, the better way, that means he's excellent, superior, vastly greater. He is supreme. The author of Hebrews is writing to a congregation, uh, to a group of believers in Jesus Christ, that for various reasons are beleaguered, they are worn out, they are tired, they don't know what to do, and they're, they're in, their, in their tiredness, their thought process is, maybe we should just go back to how things were in the Old Testament. Maybe we should just go back to kind of the religious way of doing things. They're tempted to leave Jesus the better way behind because they're going to go do the more familiar for them. Guys, I believe that we are in our society and in this period of time, the church, Living Hope included, is tired. The church is worn out. The church is confused. The church has been isolated because of COVID and pandemic stuff and just differing views on different things. And we need to come together and be reminded that Jesus is the better way. This message, not because of me, but because of how God utilized the author of Hebrews, is something that applies to us today. The worn out church of today needs to hear that Jesus is the better way. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to jump in in verse 11. We're going to read through 28. I'm going to read a name that you may or may not have seen before, and you may go, what's up with that name? Hang on to those questions, and hopefully we'll answer those questions, all right? Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. He says, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, 
And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement from con uh, concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope, there's that word better, is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better, there's that word better again, covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, like I said, we are jumping in the middle of something that's already begun to be discussed. Names are coming in, Melchizedek, that maybe we're not as familiar with. And so we need to kind of begin to unpack what is this story or what is this account getting at. The first thing I want to mention to you is look in verse 11. In verse 11, there is a mention of three different types of priests. It mentions the Levitical priests, which also calls under the order of Aaron. So there's the Levitical priests that are mentioned. And then there's a priest by the name of Melchizedek that's mentioned. And then there's a reference to, as it says in verse 11, another priest. So there are three priests that are mentioned. You're like, okay, why are we spending the next 30 minutes talking about priests? Like, why is that in the book of Hebrews? What is the deal with priests in this passage? Let me, let me tell you why the focus here. You'll see in your sermon notes the first point, and that is that everyone needs access to God. Everyone needs access to God. What was the role or functionality of priests? The functionality of a priest was to be a mediator or a go-between between people and God. It, it was, it, he was designed to kind of open the doorway, if you will, for a relationship between man and woman and God. It was designed to help people draw near to God. Look at that phrase, draw near. You can see it in verse 19. You can see it in verse 25. There in verse 19, here's what it says. In verse 19, it says, a better hope which is, uh, is introduced through which we draw near to God. Whenever you see the phrase draw near to God, it carries with it this context of needing to have access to God, to be able to be in right relationship with him. In fact, the phrase draw near 
uh, is, is used in Hebrews eight different times. And so whenever we see this introduction of priests, it's because we see that people need a way to approach or come before or have access to God. And so in the Old Testament, God utilized priests to be a part of that equation. And in fact, whenever you think of priests in the Old Testament, the most common priests that you would see in the Old Testament, in fact, all priests that you would see in the Old Testament referencing the worship of the one true God would be the Levitical priests, with the one exception being Melchizedek. So whenever you read in the Old Testament about the priests, they came from the tribe of Israel called Levi. And so all the descendants, all the guys on the, in the Levite tribe were guys that worked in the temple or worked in the, the, the sanctuary and so, or the tabernacle. And so, so the, the priestly line came from the Levite tribe. But beyond that, within the Levite tribe, you had a, a brother of, of Moses named Aaron, and it was his descendants that were the specific priests. So that's why the context of Levitical and Aaron and what that's getting at. And, and so within the tribe of, of, of Levi, within the bloodline of Aaron, you had priests that they were given the job or the task to help people come into the presence of God. So how, how do they do that? They did that through sacrificial animals. Like we read about it just then in Hebrews chapter 7. And you can read about it all over the Old Testament. Where, where people would, uh, where priests would uh, sacrifice animals on behalf of himself first because he was a sinful man, and then he would sacrifice animals on behalf of the people, and that was the method that the priests used to, to gain access for God's people uh, to, to God. You also see a, a word here in verse 11. You see the word perfection. The idea is, it says in verse 11, that the reality is that perfection was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. What is perfection in the context of Scripture? There in verse 11, like I said, is the word perfection. It's used 13 times in the book of Hebrews. It's used multiple times right here in this passage. In fact, it's used three times. Perfection has with it the idea of putting someone in right relationship with God. So, how was it that people gained access to God? Through their priest. How did they gain access through the priest? It's through this process of being perfected or cleansed. It was the idea of cleansing oneself in order to be in the presence of God. So we see, look down in verse 27. In verse 27, it references the high priest that would offer sacrifices daily. It says he would first do it for his own sins, and then he would do it for his people. The idea of a sacrifice was to bring cleansing, to bring repentance and forgiveness of sin for the one who had submitted the sacrifice. And yet, the writer of Hebrews says that the Levitical system was not the better way. In fact, if you look in verse 18, it uses the phrase weak, useless. So wait a minute. God put the sacrificial system in place. He commanded the people of Israel to have sacrifices and to utilize their priests to have these sacrifices. And yet, at the same time, the writer of Hebrews says that this system was weak and useless. Again, like I said, that's in verse 18. Yes, God put it into place, 
But in itself, by itself, the sacrificial system was ineffective and inefficient and inferior. The only way that the sacrificial system works is when we see its connection to Jesus Christ. Here's some ways that the sacrificial system was ineffective and weak and useless. Did you know that the sacrificial system that they used actually provided limited access to God? Who was it that could come into the presence of God? Those that were able to go to the temple. Well, where was the temple located? You needed to go to Jerusalem for that. And then once you got there, who was it that was able to go into the most holy place? Not the commoner, but instead it was the priest. And how often could the priest go into the presence of God in the holy of holies? And that was only once a year whenever he sacrificed on the day of atonement. The, the passage here continues to talk about the insufficiency of the old priesthood method, and that is, it says that different priests served year after year, that multiple priests came into being. Look down in verse 23. In verse 23, it says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So he's saying, hey, priests were good, but priests were uh, weren't... Uh, um, Priests were sinful men as well, and they weren't uh, permanent in place, and they would die off. And so there was a constant changing of the guard, if you will. We see that there's daily, ongoing, daily sacrifices, because the sacrifices only covered the sin, didn't truly atone for the sin. So, the first point is everyone needs access to God. We looked at the Old Testament way of having access to God. Now let's go to the second point in the sermon notes, and that is that Jesus is actually the one who provides this access, and he provides it by the power of his life. You see, the Old Testament system of sacrifices was what God ordered and commanded, and the people of Israel were doing the right thing to follow that system. But the only reason that system was effective and useful for God was not because of the system itself, but because that system was pointing to Jesus Christ, the one who was coming, who would be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And so there is where we truly gain access to God. Whenever you look at the end of verse 11, like I said, it mentions the Levitical priests. We've talked about them a little bit. But then it talks about Melchizedek, and then it talks about another priest. Let's talk briefly about who this, um, I can't even speak clearly, Melchizedek character is. The, the Melchizedek character, who is he? Look back at Genesis chapter 14. In Genesis 14, we read a story about Abraham, or, or as he'll be referred to here, he'll be referred to as Abram. And the story involves Abram and his nephew Lot. Abram's nephew Lot was captured by some kings and he was carried off. He was in captivity. And so whenever Abram finds out about that, Abraham sends a group of guys, himself included, to go rescue Lot from this captivity. They are successful. They bring Lot back. And as they're traveling back, we meet this character by the name of Melchizedek. Look at Genesis chapter 14, uh, verses 18 through 20. Abraham comes up and it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abraham, and here's what he said to Abraham. 
Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And that's the end of Melchizedek's story. Like we have three verses. Dude randomly shows up on the scene. He's described as the king of Salem. He's described as a priest of the most high God. And then he vanishes, if you will. So who is this guy? Well, to find out more information about him, we come to the book of Hebrews, actually, and we see that Hebrews discusses him quite a bit, especially uh, only in chapters 5, 6, and 7, and especially in chapter 7. Look down, uh, look up, I should say, at chapter, look up to verse 2 of chapter 7, if I can spit it out. Here's what it says. It's talking about Melchizedek in verse 1, and then it describes him at the end of verse 2. It says, he is first by translation of his name. Here's what his name means. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, which we read about in Genesis. That is king of peace. So here's some things we know about Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a real guy. Melchizedek was a real priest of the most high God. Melchizedek was not a Levitical priest, however, because Abraham had not yet had Jacob, who had not yet had Isaac, who had not yet had Levi. So Levi had not been born yet, so Melchizedek was before Levi, so therefore Melchizedek is not in the tribe of Levi. He is not a Levitical priest. He's a different kind of priest altogether. We also see that he's the king of Salem. You're like, well, where's Salem? Is there a witch hunt there? No, it's a different Salem. Salem is actually where Jerusalem would end up being. Jerusalem was not there yet. Instead, there was a city of the name Salem. The word Salem carries with it the word shalom. Perhaps you've heard the word shalom in Hebrew before, and the word shalom means peace. So here is King Melchizedek, king of Salem, which means peace, and he's a priest of the Most High God, and his name means king of righteousness. A lot of things that we can understand about who Melchizedek is, but not a lot of verses to read about him. The only other place in the scripture where Melchizedek is mentioned is found in Psalm 110. Psalm 110, in that psalm, he is referenced. And then in verse 4, we read the, the, the thing specifically about him. I failed to mark this passage, so let me turn to it. Psalm 110, verse 4. Here's what it says. The Lord has sworn and will change, not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you're like, oh, that verse sounds familiar. Yes, it should, because back in Hebrews chapter 7, that verse is referenced and quoted two different times. It's quoted in verse uh, 17 and then down in verse 21. And that same verse is going to be ended up quoted eight times in the book of Hebrews. All right, so what's going on here? What's going on is the people have been used to Levitical priests. Now the author of Hebrews is pointing them towards Jesus who is the better priest. And the reason that Jesus is the better priest is because he's not just a priest because he was born into a line of people that made him a priest. In fact, he wasn't from the tribe of Levi at all. He was from the tribe of Judah. 
And so therefore there's something unique or different about Jesus. And he points back to Melchizedek and says, just as Melchizedek was a different kind of priest, so is Jesus. And in the Old Testament, oftentimes we'll see something that God will set up to point towards something in the future. And what God is doing is he's not just randomly inserting a true guy by the name of Melchizedek that just shows up on the spot out of nowhere, but rather God purposefully includes a guy by the name of Melchizedek so that he can point in the, to the coming Messiah or Savior, Jesus Christ. And so in some ways, when we go back to Genesis 14, it's a prophecy of a coming messiah and here's what he says he says this coming priest or as verse 11 says another priest that comes after the order of melchizedek this is jesus christ himself and he comes not because he was born into the 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 priesthood but rather by his indestructible life Verse 16, that's why I'm looking at my notes. I was trying to remember which verse. Verse 16, Jesus becomes a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Let's think about Jesus' life for a moment. Jesus' life is indestructible. The word indestructible carries with it the concept of eternal, ongoing, never ending not able to be destroyed and it's the power of his life that brings us access to the father the word power here from the greek is dunamis which is where we get our word dynamite so it's quite literally explosive powerful capable able sufficient the idea of power here says that the power is found in the very nature of the thing the very nature of jesus is that he is indestructible eternal sovereign god and his life was raised with resurrection power and that is where our hope is found i'm reminded of john chapter 14 verse 6 here's what jesus says i am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me so god has given a, a need for all of us to have access to him the question is how does that access come about I've got great news. We no longer have to take a lamb on Sunday morning and bring it here to the altar and slaughter it and kill it and, and, and have that as our sacrifice to have our sins forgiven. Because that's the old system. The better way has come, and that way is Jesus. The way we gain access to the Father is through his indestructible life. A lot of conversation this morning about having access to God, you're like, why do we need access to God? Don't I just show up? Like, don't I just come to God and say, hey, I need to talk to you? Well, not exactly. The Bible is clear that all of us are sinners. All of us have offended God. All of us have been enemies of God. All of us have thumbed our noses at God. All of us have done things our own way. 
The Bible says that because of our sin, we are separated from God. We have absolutely no access to God because of our sin. So we have an option. We can go in the backyard, try to rock that post and get there our own way, get bonked upside the head, or we can trust in Jesus. See, as long as I continue to do things my own way, I was never going to succeed. Doesn't matter what method you try to follow. Church attendance, being a good little boy, saying yes ma'am, no ma'am, saying the right things, doing the right things, praying the right prayer. Those things don't gain access to the throne of God. The only thing, the only way we gain access to the throne of God is through Jesus Christ. Because of his indestructible life. You see, Jesus came and he lived a life that none of us can live hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way just as you and i are and yet was without sin we're told that jesus went to the cross and died for our sin like he died the death that you and i deserve but because of his indestructible life he was raised to new life, overcoming sin and death and the grave in order that we might receive forgiveness of our sins. My question is, are you trusting your way? Or are you trusting God's way, which is Jesus Christ? As we're thinking about the sacrifice that Jesus made, I want to show you real quickly a chart that I found in a commentary this week, and it shows the differences between the Levitical priests and Jesus, who is the high priest. And we won't take time to really walk through all of it. You can take a picture of it if you want to, or you can jot it down or whatever. But we see on the left-hand side the Old Testament way, the Levitical priest. On the right-hand side, we see Jesus, our high priest. And we see how contrary to the Levitical priest, there's only one true high priest, and that is Jesus Christ, and not many. Uh, we see that Jesus is permanent, eternal. He's uh, he's, he's unchanging, unlike the Levitical priests, which are, were temporary. We see that the Levitical priests had to offer sacrifices for their own sins first because they were sinners themselves, and yet Jesus uniquely was holy, innocent, and without sin, and so therefore he offers a sacrifice for others and not for himself. We see that the Old Testament priests had to sacrifice on a daily basis, and yet in Hebrews we see that Jesus was sacrificing himself once and for all, and that the Old Testament priests sacrificed animals, and yet Jesus sacrificed or offered up himself. All of this pointing to the fact that Jesus is the better way, that Jesus is the one who brings true uh, access to the throne of God. I love how it says in verse 25, look down in verse 25. In verse 25, it says this, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him because of his, indestructi uh, uh, his intercession for them. But I want you to see the phrase, save to the uttermost. Let's think for a minute about what the phrase or the word uttermost means. Uttermost carries actually two different types of meanings with it. Uttermost carries with it the idea that it completely, he completely saves us. And it also carries with it at all times. And so there is a sense that there is, is, is the ability to forgive everything while also being able to always forgive everything. That it's, that it's complete 
eternal, long-lasting, unchangeable. He forgives and saves to the uttermost. It doesn't matter what your sin is because God can forgive that sin because he saves to the uttermost. You're like, but I'm the biggest gossip there is. Jesus can save to the uttermost. You're like, but I have stolen from my employer. Employer, Jesus can save to the uttermost. You go, but I've cheated on my spouse. Jesus can save to the uttermost. But I'm the most perverse person that exists. Jesus can save to the uttermost. What about that murderer? Yes, Jesus can save to the uttermost. No one is beyond the scope of Jesus's forgiveness. He saves to the uttermost. Salvation is entirely the work of Jesus and not our work. From beginning to end, he saves to the uttermost and look at how salvation continues as we read there in verse 25. In verse 25 it says, since he always lives to make intercession for us. What does it mean that Jesus lives to make intercession for us? It means he is in the presence of the Father right now pleading on our behalf praying for us, interceding on our behalf, continuing to serve as our mediator with the Father. Here's the deal. Jesus' work as the high priest happened when he laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, but his a job and role as a priest continues to this day as he's interceding on our behalf. Have you ever felt like you needed to pray, but you just didn't know what to pray? Good news is that Jesus is in the presence of the Father interceding on our behalf. So as I think about how we have access to the Father through the power of the Son's life, as we have access to the Father because of Jesus Christ, I am so thankful that we're no longer under the Levitical priesthood and that we are under the high priest of Jesus. I'm so thankful that I don't have to serve as a Levitical priest or that I don't have to go through a Levitical priest, but instead I am just like you. I have straight access to the Father through Jesus Christ because of what he has done on my behalf. Yesterday, I was struggling with a little bit of um, anxiousness about some things. So I reached out to my discipleship group. We, we call our discipleship group D groups around here. But my discipleship group, a couple of guys, I shot them a text real quick and kind of told them a little bit what was going on and shared with them some things going on in my life. And this word of advice that I got from one of them ties directly into this idea that I am just like you, that I have access to the Father just like you, and that I don't provide some special access for you on your behalf. Here's what he said. Don't forget that you, talking about me, are only a man who needs the grace of God just like the rest of us. All of us need the grace of God. All of us need access to the Father. And how do we have access to the Father? Only through Jesus Christ. That brings us to the last point that you'll see there on your notes. That we are left with a confident assurance. We sang a moment ago about blessed assurance. Here it says this leaves us. The idea that we can trust in Jesus for access to the Father, this gives us a confident assurance. Look back at verse 19. 
Verse 19 says that because of Jesus, because of this new way, because of the better way, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The way we have access to the Father is through Jesus. Because he brings us access to the Father, that gives us a better hope. I love the name of our church, Living Hope. Jesus is our living hope. Hebrew says it a little bit different way, same thing, but he's the better hope. He is something we look forward to with complete confidence. Because of the power of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus' life, we are completely cleansed. Look down in verse 22, and it says that Jesus is the guarantor. He guarantees the reality of our salvation. So not only is Jesus our mediator, but he's also the guarantee that we have right standing with God because of what he did on our behalf. So whenever it says that Jesus is a better hope, it's not like we're crossing our fingers and going, I hope Jesus does it for me. It's not like what I'm doing every year. I hope the Cowboys actually have a winning season. Like that's an endless hope that never comes to fruition. With Jesus Christ, it is a confident, guaranteed hope 100% of the time. We have hope because of Jesus Christ. We have hope for life despite the what seems to be resurging pandemic. We have hope because of Jesus Christ to live this life regardless of a sense of isolation and loneliness that some of us may be feeling even as we're in a room full of people. We have hope because of Jesus Christ in spite of the fact that we live in a broken, messed up, sinful, perverse world. We have hope because of Jesus Christ, despite the fact that we live in a divisive world and that division exists not only in the world, it also exists in the church at large. We have hope because of Jesus Christ, regardless of the problems that you are facing in your own life. Just talking to a friend of mine as she came into church this morning, about another friend of ours who happens to be on the vent right now with COVID. And I am praying that the hope of Jesus Christ would come down on that family and that they would find their hope and their confidence in Jesus and not in medical technology. I don't know what it's like to know that my loved one is on a vent and has been for three weeks. And I'm not making light of what they're going through. I'm simply saying, regardless of our very best day or our absolute crummiest day, that Jesus brings hope. And it's our job as followers of Jesus to live in that hope and to point others to the hope that's found in Jesus. Let me share one caveat. It is true that we have hope because of Jesus Christ. And it's true that we should share that hope with others about Jesus Christ and it also would be wrong of me to call that friend up and go hey chill out don't worry about your husband being on the event because Jesus will make everything okay like that's not the way to express the hope that's found in Jesus but there are appropriate ways to share the hope of Jesus I don't know where you are this morning but you have a better hope and that hope has the name Jesus I want to spend just a minute talking about how a local church, if we're not careful, can place our hope on the wrong thing or in the wrong thing. Here are some ways that I think any local church, our church included, can, if we're not careful, place our hope in something or someone else besides Jesus Christ for our future as a church family. Here are some places if you place your hope in you will be 
sadly disappointed. If your hope is found in your pastor, you're going to be disappointed. If your hope is found in your elders, you are going to be disappointed. If your hope is found in your deacons, you will be disappointed. If your hope is found in your staff, you're going to be disappointed. If your hope is found in other uh, leaders within the congregation, you will find yourself disappointed. If you put your hope in programs or events, you're going to find yourself disappointed. If you put your hope in attendance and do we have enough people at church, that will be a disappointing hope as well. If you put your hope in our finances or our budget, that will fall apart. If you put your hope in this is the way things have always been done, it's going to be an empty hope. If you put your hope in, hey, we're going to do it a new way, that is an empty hope. Your hope and my hope should be found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. For those of you that might have hit the panic button, let me explain what I didn't say. I didn't say that there's a bunch of moral failure among all the leaders that I just shared and said you can't trust us. I didn't say you can't trust us. I said don't put your hope in us. Our hope should be in Jesus and him alone. I'm reminded of an old hymn, an old song that you probably don't want me to sing for you, but maybe you'll sing it in your head as I read the text. My hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Where's your hope? Is your hope in a good thing? Or is your hope in the best thing? Is your hope in an inferior thing or in a superior being? Is your hope found in stuff or is your hope found in Jesus? This week, I want to finish with this. This week, as I was thinking about hitting my head on that post and being a complete idiot and all of that, I was reminded that at the time, it seemed logical. Like, how else do you get a post out of the ground? For those of you that know how to get it out, like, don't laugh at me, but, like, how else do you get it out? You dig it out, or you beat the snot out of it into submission, and then you get it out of the concrete. But none of those things worked. As humans, the reason we don't choose the better way is because we think our way is better. Here are some ways that you might even want to jot down. And I would ask you to evaluate, are you susceptible to following these ways instead of the better way? Here's the first one that I wrote down. Some people, including people in this room, have the philosophy, well, any way will get me to God. I mean, don't all paths lead to God? You're like, Alan, come on now. We're at Living Hope. We don't believe that. I'll grant that the majority of us in this room probably don't believe that all roads lead to God. But could it be that we function as if that's the case? And what I mean by that is, for us, we know that Jesus is the exclusive way to salvation. But for our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, the dude at the post office, we don't want to infringe on him and say, oh, Jesus is the only way to salvation because that seems offensive. And so we function as if any way leads to God. And so we need to repent of that. Here's another way that we may choose. The American way, the patriotic, 
Christianity, nationalism, don't get me wrong, patriotism is a good thing, but don't ever confuse patriotism with Christianity. Another way that we can go is the church way. You're like, dude, as long as I go to church, as long as I go to, uh, to the programs, as long as I give money to the church, as long as I pray for the pastor, as long as I go to the right classes, as long as I uh, participate in all of the events and activities, as long as I do the right religious things. But that is not the way for salvation. Here, here's another way that some will go, and that's the good guy way. They focus on being a nicer, moral person. Like, as long as I'm a good guy, it's going to be kind of okay. And then here's kind of the trendy way right now, and that's the justice way. The justice way. Let me, not Jacob justice way, but the justice way. The way of justice, like, as long as I right all the wrongs in culture, then I'm good with God. As long as I address justice issues or racism, or you name it, then, then that is what is going to make me right with God. Now, I'm not saying that pursuing justice is a bad thing. I'm simply saying that the pursuit of justice never gives us access to God. See, access to God comes from the way, and that's Jesus himself. Only he brings salvation. Only he is the one that gives us access to the Father. Only he is the one who is interceding on our behalf on a daily basis. Only he is the high priest. Only he is the king of peace. Only he is the king of righteousness. And it's because of his righteousness that we can be put at peace in our relationship with God and know him in an intimate way. So this morning, what is God saying to you? How is he leading you? In what ways do you need to repent of sin in your life? Do you need to say yes to Jesus for the first time? Like you've been going your own way and not Jesus' way? Or you've been satisfied with a less than way and you need to get your eyes back on Jesus? It might be that you need to come and pray at this altar. And, and I need to clarify, just because you're praying at the altar does not mean your life has fallen apart, it's in shambles and you're about to get a divorce next week. Coming to pray at the altar can be a very proactive thing and it should be a proactive thing. So whether you feel led to pray at your seat, pray at the altar, come and visit with me, Let's say yes to Jesus, who is the better way, the only way to a relationship with the Father and trust him with everything going on in our lives. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, our high priest, the king of peace, the king of righteousness. Father, I pray that you would help us to repent of the ways that we turn to other things other ways of doing things when there's a better way there's the only way and that's you that jesus is the way for salvation that jesus is the way for ongoing relationship with you that jesus is the way that we draw near to you and so father i pray that in the next few moments that we would hear your voice that we would respond accordingly that we would follow your leadership, and that, God, we'd be able to walk out of this room changed, seeing our call to be a disciple, make disciples, and be the church to your glory, that, Father, you would be lifted up this morning in our very lives, not just our words. Father, have your way among us today, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us?